and hopefully have another wee bit of a break after this <laughs> before next week. So, Evan, we have myself, Pat, um, Harry Harvey, um, Daniel here, no? Not yet. I don't see Daniel yet. It's Ro Robin's an apology, is that right? Robin's an apology, uh-huh. Okay, uh, Robbie's there. Um, okay, Nicola and Justin, yeah. So, are you expecting any other DUP members? Um, no, well, I haven't been given to understand that they're not coming either, Chair, so they might just be alone. Okay, but Diane's definitely an apology, or sorry, Robin's definitely an apology, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. so Diane might be alone. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, don't think there's any announcements here before we get started, Aving. It's a fairly straightforward <laughs> session today. Um, one. Yeah, we need a couple of minutes. Item. Yeah, we just need a couple of minutes for broadcasting to um, to be ready, if that's okay, Chair. Um, Justin's got time to get his frosties into him there, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, sorry, I should say, I, just, I, I imagine horror jokes with some sort of slow-release carbohydrates, Justin. <laughs> uh, no problem. So, well, while we're waiting, um, folks, good to see you back. Um, obviously, we were scheduled to start next Wednesday, but I, I concluded that with quite a wide range of issues circulating in education at the moment um, in relation to school restart, um, ventilation, air monitoring, um, isolation changes, test and trace, school guidance. I thought it would be prudent for us to not delay any further in getting the, the Northern Ireland Teaching Council in to give us a, a first day brief on what some of those issues are. Um, I, Clark, I, did, I think we did invite the, um, hopefully not actually tied up, Robbie, but yes, we'll, we'll manage you accordingly. Um, I, um, yeah, I think we did invite the department as well, Evening. That's right, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, so there's a there's an outstanding um, invitation to the minister, and um, I've just written to the uh, department saying, you know, can we ha have that meeting sooner rather than later? Um, particularly about GTC. So yeah. broadcast ready now, Chair. Actually, if you okay, well, just just to finish on that with the, the members, sure. we did we did invite the department. It was short notice, so I'm I'm not I'm not going to make a, a huge deal of that today. But I, I think um, presuming the issues that the 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 staff representatives are going to raise today, then we will our 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 wording in relation to that probably will be that we expect to see the department and or the minister next week or members that's that's not too strong is it no is that fair enough yeah yeah okay um are we okay to move into the session then clark yeah yes chair Okay, the meeting will open in public session we are now in public session and can i give uh, everyone a very warm welcome to this meeting of the Education Committee and ask Assembly Broadcasting to keep all members in the spotlight. Agenda item one is apologies. I have received apologies from Robin Newton, MLA. Are members aware of any other apologies? No? 
Okay, that's great. Um, I have no chairperson's business as such this morning, and there are no matters arising, uh, not least to allow us to get to agenda item four and our, our main substantive agenda item today uh, on school restart and an oral briefing from the Northern Ireland Teaching Council. Can I ask Assembly Broadcasting to remove all members from the spotlight and to add our witnesses? Can I welcome Justin McCampbell from the NASUWT, Caroline McCarthy, into Jackie White, UTU, Alistair Donaghy, NEU, and Graham Galt from the NAHT. Can I advise witnesses that you will have up to 10 minutes to make any opening statement? followed by questions from the members. Uh, can I, folks, can I also say a sincere thanks for joining us today on, on reasonably short notice. Uh, I understand that um, you all have a very important uh, other meeting this morning as well, so we're, we're really grateful for you giving up your time and we'll try and, we'll try and make sure that we move through proceedings um, as promptly as possible. But. I thought, given the range of issues that are being experienced by schools um, at this moment in time, that it, it was essential that we gave you this opportunity to come to the Education Committee uh, and give us a, an early day briefing on the impact that those issues are having and what we can do as an Education Committee to try and assist our, our education sector in relation to some of those issues. I hope that's helpful and hand over to you. Thank you. Uh, good morning, Chair. I um, hope you can hear me loud and clear. Yeah, Justin, if I just check that anyone who isn't speaking uses their, their mute button just to try and make sure the sound quality is best as possible. Thanks, Justin. Okay, uh, and thank you uh, again for the invite, Chair. Um, and obviously, we, ha we have been having a lot of uh, issues around restart, and many school leaders have been in contact uh, with all five unions. and. But so have teachers as well with concerns around uh, how self-isolation is working. And we're quite shocked, I suppose, to find that uh, issues have been cropping up uh, so quickly. But I suppose in many ways it mightn't be surprising given the community uh, transmission. It certainly is a different experience from the first couple of days last year. Um, and I, I know my colleagues will want to go into that. But I also think it's important today that we do touch on uh, the GTCNI uh, as well as the issue around exams. And I know we've discussed both of them uh, with the committee before. And I think people are aware of the GTC issue, but I think we need to remember that there is to be a system of assessment this year that has cut out units in the majority of subjects, but there are still some subjects uh, where there are going to be serious issues. So maybe like sometime in the meeting to discuss that, but I'm just going to hand over to my colleagues. Thanks, Justin. Um, if you're happy enough, then folks, I'll go next. Um, I suppose, really, first of all, thank you very much for meeting us so early within this school year. And as you've already said, Chris, there are a Caroline, number. Caroline, just to pause you for a second, I on the. Uh, on the spotlight system, it does say your name, but it might it might be worth you guys just introducing yourself again. I want to make sure people understand you know, who you are Apologies. and who you represent. No, that's okay. Just just for your your benefit, because we're very grateful for you being here. Thank you. Of course, uh, my name is Caroline McCarthy. I am uh, currently an official with the INTO, 
uh, trade union for teachers uh, throughout the system and at all levels. Um, I'm also a, a teacher myself, just out of special school background. So um, like everybody here, uh, our WhatsApps, our phones, our emails have been pinging constantly from schools reopened with concerns. And then that has really turned into the actual practical instances where we are seeing already cases coming up in schools and impacts that aren't really in line with the DE guidance. So I suppose um, from my point of view, and I'm, I'm just gonna be um, as brief as I can this morning, it really falls into two main areas of direct concern. Concern from the PHA point of view and concern from DE. Um, from the PHA last time, and I raised concerns with yourselves, and uh, very fortunately, the PHA got in contact with me after speaking to you. And the concern I had raised then was about contact tracing and how that was working and the confidence of staff in the safety that was around them. Um, so we were shown uh, we were shown a video and we, we've contacted and communicated regularly with DE asking for that to be shared on a broader scale because really the the key to the key to getting this right is building the confidence of the staff who are in schools that they are getting it right and that it is right around them um, there seems to have been a delay or a reluctance with which to share that and i think in the, in this case information is power communication is power and safety is really the crux of it all our other concern from the point of view of um, the PHA is whether there is the ability to cope with demand. The hours of communication are limited between eight and four during the week and 10 to two at the weekends. That's not how schools are operating. That's not how principals are being informed. And that's creating a significant stress for our school leaders who are having to carry information outside of those hours with nobody to communicate with. And those hours apply both to the PHA and to the EA. An expansion of that support may relieve some of the pressure that is actually being experienced within those hours. And within those hours, there is a delay when a school puts in a phone call in getting a response back. And we're already getting um, reports of that potentially being a concern. Carol, um, just to double check there, so the, the, the education PHA helpline is available only, did you say nine to four weekdays and 10, or nine and 10 to no, two eight, weekdays? Eight, no, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Okay. And 10 to 2 at the weekends. And while that is obviously a staffing issue, I believe there needs to be an expansion in that to provide support to school leaders as and when they need it to put in place the communications that need to go out. A lot of pressure is on principals with it, with regards to the track and trace. And I suppose this leads very simply into the DE guidance where the removal of bubbles and the enthusiasm of an idea of stepping back from the strength of the guidance before is maybe too early to have put in place. We're already seeing schools needing to close bubbles. We're already seeing principals needing to make decisions with regards to reintroducing bubbles within schools. But the issue we have is a, a sort of front facing, um, more of a, 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 a sort of public image of a reassurance to parents that we're stepping back to a normal education as such, when in actual fact, what schools are going to need to do is put in place a safe education that minimizes, um, minimizes contact potentially and improves the ability to track and trace within classes. 
Um, it was reported yesterday on the news that the, the new variant is airborne within a classroom where you're talking about potentially over 30 people within a room in the majority of our classes that um, and limited ventilation. I think another aspect that has come about is maybe a lack of awareness of what the school's estate is actually like. And when you say maximize ventilation, to me, if you're maximizing, you're applying, there is a minimum that is acceptable. And there's been nothing done within Northern Ireland to address what the minimum should be or how schools would identify that, be it CO2 machines, be it a review and a sort of clearer clarity of what can be done. Our classes and class sizes are very big in other schools and other areas. Uh, on the other jurisdictions, they're looking at reducing class size. Our school's estate doesn't necessarily facilitate that, and that is an area of significant concern. Um, another aspect is the equality. Deciding safety as opposed to PHA guidance, deciding safety. Um, an example would be our 18-year-old students, 18 plus within special school, they're 19. Um, DE have communicated that they will be treated in the same bracket as the 5 to 17-year-olds. Is that keeping those young people as safe as they should be? Not following the guidance that is out in the general public for 18 and 19-year-olds. And that... Um, while equality is an aspect, it should never impact upon safety and the safety of the individual should be key. That again creates a confusion amongst parents and a breakdown in communication that can happen between parents and schools that we don't need to be facing this year. That's a stress that isn't needed for our school leaders. There's a, a transportation is in the news today. Uh, with regard to the impact of that. And I think that illustrates maybe a lack of forward planning and a preempting of change that has come from, uh, in, in, in the return to school. Schools have been closed over the summer. The first day back is not just an impact on the transport for those children, but it is also a direct impact for the schools because whereas before they would have had minimum people coming to the school, potentially causing cross-contamination, we have schools in the Fermanagh and Tyrone area today who are going to have packed school gates and potentially increased transmission within areas that are already very high um, within Northern Ireland. I think it was reported they were both the highest areas of um, infection just last week. Communication with parents and carers is key. Preparation for the idea that there may need to be a circuit break at Halloween and forward planning for that helps not just schools, but also helps um, the families to plan for that. And that was brought up um, by my colleague Justin, Justin at the last meeting that we had with DE, but there has been no communication come out to parents from this. The relationship between schools and parents is critical and can easily break down in stressful situations. Our school leaders are combating that all of the time um, and, and having issues with that. Um, the final point that I would, um, or the final point I would like to bring up, apart from strengthening the guidance, that step back, and we raised at the last meeting, how are we going to back up, put back up the measures, the mitigations that need to be there, take the pressure off school management and DE, put that in place is the funding for schools and that funding for schools last year while the reassurance was coming forward that identified as a covid cost and you will re be reimbursed 
that funding isn't coming through and school leaders need that reassurance to be able to plan going forward um, what the, how they're going to staff, how they're going to deliver a curriculum that needs to be as wide as possible and continue to deliver the education that's needed. Thank you. Chris, can I, can I just come in after yeah. Carla? Thanks, Graham. Go ahead and introduce yourself there. Thank you. Thanks, thanks Carla. Okay. Um, I'm Graeme Galt, the president of the National Association of Head Teachers in Northern Ireland, and uh, I'm representing uh, school leaders in every sector that we have. Um, I agree with what Caroline has just said before me. Um, I would just add to it that uh, the issue of contact tracing, which is um, all encompassing now for uh, the vast majority of our principals, if not all, uh, is something that needs to be addressed urgently by government. Um, when we've met the, uh, uh, when, when we have risen to the response of this public health crisis, the government has demonstrated the ability to move staff within departments. So medical practitioners were moved to support the vaccination program and were moved to support um, testing and so on. But the issue of contact tracing in this sphere of life where we have uh, probably the greatest risk of transmission uh, with so many children, uh, 86,000 across our school estate, uh, the issue of contact tracing has simply been left to school leaders. Our previous minister said that's because school leaders are best placed to manage it. But what we are, the context that we're in now is that uh, the scale of transmission and the, the sheer scale of contact tracing required by each individual school leader across this country uh, is just enormous. And it's, uh, I'm asking today if the minister and government, wider than just the minister, would look at redeploying uh, a workforce from across the education sector to support principals to doing this. Um, because the uh, uh, yesterday, for example, Chris, I was speaking to a principal who has spent every day since the 19th of August dealing only with COVID issues, uh, has not yet been able to run a child protection refresher training for his staff, has not yet been able to meet with staff to discuss uh, curricular issues, curricular provisions, pastoral support, safeguarding, looking after children with extremely, who, who are extremely vulnerable uh, and so on. Uh, I mean, our school principals are just being taken away from the work that they're supposed to be doing to manage this crisis. And if, if this, scale of transmission that we're dealing with now is short it is hopefully short term a matter of weeks or months uh it's really important that government steps up and puts in a workforce to support principals in doing this and i, I chris my and committee my understanding is this isn't really a big ask we've got thousands of people who work across the ages education sector in various uh departments and agencies we don't have that many schools. It's quite simple. Principals would make a space for a person to come in and manage contract tracing to allow school leaders to do the job that they should be doing, their, their essential job of running their schools, which is always difficult, but within COVID, just managing the mitigations and so on is increasingly difficult. It's really important that government supports our principals to do this. Thank you.
Um, maybe I'll come in after Graham, Chris, if that's okay. Yeah, um, Okay, Jackie White, and I'm from uh, the Ulster Teachers Union. And I would just like to actually um, back up everything that uh, the previous colleagues have said and maybe just, you know, add a, a, a few, um, I suppose, issues that have come in, you know, just specifics that have come in that makes this situation so different from the situations that we've had before. Caroline had said about the, the lack of PHA support. Um, I had been in contact with the principal who had cases um, before the school actually opened or before the children actually returned. And the PHA helpline was actually closed completely on Bank Holiday Monday whenever he was in a position where he was trying to um, trying to get things put in place before the children arrived on the Tuesday. So, you know, they, there is concern about the support that's out there. There's also a concern about the consistency of message, which I think has already been referred to. And we appreciate, and I think principals, principals appreciate the fact that, yes, one size does not fit all in schools and there's a certain flexibility. But there is that feeling that there's a lot of discomfort with the new arrangements because there's, in a way, so much flexibility that, um, well, two things happen. First of all, principals who are not um, medical practitioners um, they it is being left there's too much responsibility being put onto them to manage different ways of moving forward instead of having consistent messages basic messages that you can spring flexibility from but there's also a concern about the reaction of um end users if you like of the 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 service reactions of parents and reactions of children if schools are doing things in a different way they there is a a huge concern. It's so different because principals are reporting back that all of their colleagues that they've been talking to in their particular areas have cases at the moment. This is a this is a whole different ball game, and the shift is sort of coming now that principals are very concerned. We're always concerned about the the health and safety of staff and children, but with the vaccination program, there's a concern now about. Um, you know, what we're hearing about long COVID, the trend downwards in the age groups and so on. And there's a worry that by this not being managed properly, that you're going to have children who are coming out of this with much longer term effects, which which also makes them um, um, very uncomfortable. There's an issue too about contacts. When we're talking about tra track and trace, if you have, if you are a close contact in school, now that we have got the testing as opposed to the self-isolation, if there's a contact in school, someone who has tested positive for COVID, they leave the workplace and they go home and people coming back in after being tested are not then in contact with that person. But there's a little bit of an issue, well, there's a big issue actually arising from a contact at home. Because if you know that you've got a member of staff or a child who has a COVID case in the home, they are being tested, but they're going back to the home day after day. And there's a concern then and there are there are anxieties arising from the fact that there, there's an awareness that you have got children or staff presenting in school who actually have a COVID case at home. Um, I think that principals feel that it's very important that we make sure we have a real handle on what is actually happening in schools. We look very closely at the, the number of cases that we have and how this is accelerating because it may well be that the department 
the employing authorities need to respond very quickly. And can I just say in that context, I have come across no school leaders who are, are wishing to go back to lockdown. There are no school leaders who, who want to see their schools closing. What they want are mitigations that allow the, the education to continue. And just on that, um, Graham had said about the, the amount of time a principal said to me, um, only 50% of his time now is spent actually on education because so much of the time is spent on the, the issues around the outside whenever he actually wants to start driving things forward. But, we, you know, we it may well be that we need to, um, as Caroline, I think, referred to, we need to tighten something very quickly. We need to have some kind of a plan that we can bring in very quickly because if the numbers go out of control, principals need that support. And at the minute, what we're feeling is that or what we're hearing is that they feel they're being left very much to their own devices. And the worry is that they, of course, want to do the best in terms of health and safety for the population of their schools. But they need to know that that's based on something real and that they're getting the support to do that. And I would, would back up Graham on his point of the additional support for contact tracing and so on. It's a huge job. It's taken up a huge amount of time. And it's also... Uh, principals being left to it on their own, it's good to have even a sounding board from an anxiety point of view. It's good to have um, someone else that can work alongside and sort those out and make sure that everybody who needs to be identified is identified. Um, yep, I think that's that, that's what I'll add for now, Chris. Thank you. Thanks, Jackie. Justin, do you want to come back in or are you happy for us to move the questions? Can I bring Justin into the spotlight and check you're off mute, Justin? Thanks. Okay. Thanks. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Chair. Um, yeah, thank you for that. I think the colleagues have covered the topics very well. I think the one thing I think that maybe we haven't covered is uh, monitoring of schools to ensure uh, compliance with guidance. And uh, I think it's unfortunate in many ways how it's been set up. I think a lot of the responsibility has been devolved to schools. But the department still has a responsibility uh, to ensure that risk assessments are carried out uh, and are followed. And particularly around the issue of uh, maternity, uh, we have uh, pregnant women who are over 28 weeks in some schools still receiving mixed messages and not being accommodated in relation to working from home. We've had some who haven't received risk assessments at all and some who've been presented with a risk assessment that was done without consultation. So we do think the department needs to have a role in ensuring everyone's now following the guidance that is there. You're on good now, Chair. Thanks. Do you want to touch on GTC and exams before we move to questions? Oh, oh, okay. Uh, if my colleagues don't mind, I'll do the GTC. I mean, obviously, I think from previous evidence, I think the committee is well aware that of the dysfunctional nature of GTC, but we're particularly concerned about what happened this year. And just to give the context of how the problem arose, um, the debarring list checking service that GTC used was, uh, was handled by the Teacher Pension Agency in England. And I know when I first heard it, I thought that couldn't be right. But that is who was doing the checks. 
the Department for Education in England decided that that would be handed to the Teacher Regulation Agency for England, but they would no longer be uh, providing the service to third parties from the 1st of April. And I had heard about this in June. I'd sought a meeting with the minister and I was assured by the minister uh, that the, the issue was being dealt with. And I've no doubt uh, the minister was doing her best in this, although I do think she should have done more to keep us up to speed with what was happening. My question really is, when did GTC find out that this was coming down the tracks? Because my understanding is they only started talking about resolving the issue in June. Um, I don't believe for one minute that Gavin Williamson only told GTC on the 1st of April. So I do think questions, serious questions need to be asked about when did GTC become aware of this and when did DE become aware? Um, if DE hadn't been informed, there's certainly an issue. On top of that, GTC, I understand, had long-standing issues uh, with their uh, computer systems uh, that haven't been addressed. And ultimately, a backlog was created because of the debarring issue. An IT upgrade was then applied at the busiest time of the year. But that has had disastrous consequences. We know that students who qualified in Northern Ireland may now be registered with GTC but many of them are having issues with getting work in schools because they can't, access, they can't be, be placed on the Northern Ireland Substitute Teaching Register because whatever IT upgrade GTC did knocked out part of the NISTRA register. And that's disastrous, but it's worse than for those students who had graduated uh, from universities outside of Northern Ireland. Uh, they are still waiting to be registered with GTC. Uh, some of them have provided their documentation back in March and April before they graduated. Um, I've heard some people defend GTC by saying it always takes a long time, but I would ask, well, why weren't processes in place in the past to ensure everything was moved on in the case-by-case -case basis? I understand there's some sort of bulk processing going on, but I don't think it's effective. And then the final question is, um, why weren't there enough? Why aren't there enough staff on that team? Uh, why aren't uh, temporary staff used uh, when things are busy? It is seasonal work, um, and I understand there may well have been redundancies within that team and money paid out under the DES scheme. So the question is really then the three things. Why wasn't the debarring list service made the most important thing and dealt with when GTC were first aware? Why wasn't the IT system up to date? And why was an IT upgrade applied at the busiest time? Uh, and uh, finally, um, what? Why uh, were there not? Why wasn't there adequate staffing? Okay, thanks for that, Justin. There are all questions that we can follow up on. Um, conscious of time, do, do you want to mention exams or is that for another time? It might be for another time, but just very briefly, we haven't had enough in back from the department in relation to uh, content level in particular GCSEs. Uh, one, one that we talked about before was maths, but we also, I think, discussed four or five others uh, at the meeting in June. And I think that that is still going to be an issue. I know 
uh, there's been a suggestion that a formula sheet would be provided uh, for GCSE maths. And while that might be good for higher level candidates, it's going to make little difference at the foundation level where there are hardly any formulas to know in the first place. Okay, something else we can follow up for you as well then. Appreciate that. Okay, uh, at that point then I'll bring members back in for, for questions. Uh, and just, just to, to start, um, can I, I thank you for the evidence that you're, you're giving us today. Um, there's obviously a clear consensus that we need significant improvement on the untimely and unclear in communication and guidance that characterized the ministerial and departmental response to previous um, terms uh, and, and previous uh, COVID waves. But I'm, I'm significantly concerned that that's not what our education sector is getting at the start of this new term. Um, a clear consensus that we want our schools um, back in place um, for our staff, for our pupils, but we need clear and necessary guidance and support in order for it to be safe to do so. Um, so I appreciate the constructive points that you've made today in terms of what needs to happen to achieve that. Um, PHA availability, contact tracing uh, workforce, um, I'm particularly interested in relation to isolation and, and ventilation. Um, so that'll be my, my two areas of question. In, in terms of isolation, I, I noted that um, uh, respected expert Dr. Dr. Lindsay Broadbent had asked about the issue of um, not isolating for prior to the, the day two PCR test. Um, are, 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 are you receiving any feedback from school leaders <clears throat> with regards to their agreement, comfort or otherwise in relation to the fact that it's my understanding that, that pupils um, do not have to isolate prior to receiving the result of that day two PCR test if they have been a close contact? Is, is that, that's the case, right? And, and B, what, what's the feedback from school leaders in relation to that policy? Chris, uh, that, that is correct in terms of that policy. One of the things I just wanted to touch on is, has been the advice around children who test positive and lateral flow tests, because I understand they have been told that they can continue to com come in until they get their PCR test, even though the rate of false, uh, false positives is extremely low. It's, obviously, it's different the other way around when it's a false negative, uh, but I understand the... Uh, uh, effectiveness rate for a false positive is extremely high. So I think we should be acting with caution when a child or a teacher uh, tests positive on a lateral flow test and not waiting on the PCR. And I'm sure my other colleagues will want to add something there. Okay. Uh, Chris, I think the, the only bit that I would want to add is the, the guidance flow chart for close contacts that came from the PHA to schools states on that that pupils in year one to year 14 p1 to year 14 stay at home and self-isolate until the result is available and i think this illustrates where there is confusion going to parents about what the information actually is and what um, ourselves and i'm sure my colleagues are doing as well is directing back to the pha guidance 
that has to inform what's happening. The the letter that came from the minister um, said that if, if your child gets a negative test and they can come back into school, the PHA guidance actually says that they need to have another test at day eight. And I think there needs to be absolute clarity for parents about what supports and what supports are in place to keep their child safe, the staff safe, the school community open and functioning. And where we create this gray area of misinformation it is where it falls down. And people are invited onto the radio all the time to give their opinions, but we need to be directing parents back to the PHA guidance Pupils year one P1 to 14 self-isolate until their PCR test result is through and they retest at day eight if they're close contacts. And it, sorry, the 18 year olds isolate for 10 days. And that's where we had that kind of breakdown in communication. Did you want to come in there, Graham? Yeah, um, of course, uh, I agree with Caroline, and, and uh, thanks to her for putting that clarity to it uh, on the record. Um, if a child tests negative on day two, the, the, they and they have a close contact at home, uh, they're back in school, they can be sitting beside other children, uh, and as we know from almost every virologist or expert in this field, um, it can take three or four days until... Uh, a positive test result is is achieved if that child has contracted coronavirus. So while they're still in school, they're uh, potentially passing on that infection to their neighbours sitting around them. And then on day eight, or if they develop symptoms, uh, they take a test and they're positive, then they go off, but the virus has transmitted to their classmates. This is an endless cycle. Where, where, where will that actually end? Uh, and I, again, it is, you know, parts in the guidance like that, we, we actually just don't understand unless the agenda is a committee just to have coronavirus spread through our schools. If that is the agenda, it would be very useful if uh, the department could tell us that that's what the agenda is. Uh, because we, you know, our teachers and our school leaders are trying their best to keep our school communities safe. Uh, but the guidance just raises questions as to what is actually behind some of the thinking. We would appreciate if we were spoken honestly to. Um, not by you, Chris, but by the department and indeed the PHA who have uh, put, put these things together. Um, and again, I just point to the absolute overwhelming scale of workload that is on our school leaders in trying to manage that as just one particular facet of this wider problem. Okay, Thank, thanks for that, Graham. I, I'm sure other members will want to ask um, about this issue as well, but I just want to make sure that I have also asked about ventilation. Um, we see in Wales, for example, uh, six million pounds of investment in an air technology fund to mitigate COVID transmission in schools, including 30,000 CO2 sensors um, which warn um, against um, there being poor uh, fresh air quality in classrooms. Um, I, I had written to the Education Minister 
um, to ask her to set out her ventilation plan for our schools, but have yet to receive a response. Uh, would, would you care to comment on this particular issue? I, I thought maybe Alistair might want to come in there. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks, Chris. Yeah, on, on ventilation, um, I think you're, you're you're right. There has been some funding set aside in England and Wales for CO2 monitors. Um, there there should be uh, appropriate uh, resource in Northern Ireland as well. Uh, but that's only one element of it. The guidance is is less than clear on ventilation. And as as Caroline said at the start, the the people writing the guidance and the people in PHA making the guidance. Uh, it's a long time since they were in a school building or a long time since they were in a classroom because the guidance talks about open a window if you can or if the window opens at the top, open it at the top, not the bottom. Um, that, that's not appropriate. There needs to be proper assessment of appropriate ventilation. And as Justin has already said, ventilation should be a key element of the risk assessment procedure. And those risk assessments should be reviewed now. At this time, not waiting until there's uh, a, a further increase in, in, in cases. Uh, so I, I, I would say that, that the guidance on ventilation needs to be tightened up and uh, the committee might want to ask the minister uh, for uh, an assurance that funding will be made available, not just for CO2 monitors, but for, for proper resources for schools uh, on, on, on appropriate ventilation and that that is continually monitored through the risk assessment process. I, I think, Chair... If I can add that, I think one of the reasons why maybe there's some reluctance around CO2 monitors is because they're only part of the solution. It's what do you do once the CO2 level's too high? You know, we have been contacted with the teachers who are teaching in rooms that aren't classrooms. They're just spaces that people have found in the building, maybe a former photocopying room, maybe a planning room for uh, technology that's now been used to teach maths or English. Uh, so I think that's going to be the bigger challenge once we, if we do get CO2 monitors, is what do we do about ventilation in those rooms? And again, that's my concern that risk assessments aren't being carried out, that are identifying these issues. Um, you know, and I, I think that I'm really concerned that that's happening because to be able to go back to the guidance and say, well, it says open windows were possible, but we have no windows job done, move on. That's just not acceptable. I, I'm, I'm reluctant to reduce such a, a serious issue, and I mean this um, to this level, but um, can you reassure me that the guidance and support that schools have received in relation to ventilation amounts to more than open windows? The, the, there are attached documents, Chris, that, that lead into further information that, pro, that, provide, um, that provide some good advice. Um, to schools with regards to uh, the difference between summer and winter and um, the Air Force and things like that, that you can read into and get a broader idea. But I, I think that it would be very helpful if the department would, first of all, put that specific points into their guidance. Secondly, if there was, as, as Alistair has said, an actual sort of understanding a review and assessment of what ventilation currently is within the school's estate because people are needing to make those decisions with with no with no knowledge with no background um idea about it but school leaders are being put in the position of saying it, it you know it must be safe open your window a sort of example is where there's encouragement 
to have um, school dinner halls back open again and get people back into the dinner hall. And, and obviously that needs um, a risk assessment to go ahead. If I think back to my own son's primary school, their dinner hall didn't have windows. Their dinner hall was a self-contained room, which obviously cannot be done because you would need to be ventilating. So it, again, it's that kind of encouragement to step away from mitigation, but, what, but at the same time, schools needing to remain within the mitigations to keep the school community safe. Okay, I'd best bring other members in here as well. Graham, I think you had a raised hand. Did, did you want to comment on this specific yeah. issue briefly before I do? Just, yeah, very quickly. It might be worth uh, the Education Authority asking school principals do the windows in their classrooms actually open? We do have, uh, we're hearing reports of quite a lot of uh, issues with windows in classrooms that are just broken. Uh, and um, because certain contractors, large building contractors have lost contracts with the Education Authority. Uh, these have been reported for months, but not fixed. Thanks, Graham. Okay, can I bring in Deputy Chairperson, Pat Sheehan, MLA? Uh, thanks, Chris, and thanks to all of you uh, for coming in this morning. Um, it, it's, a, it's a very difficult situation, and as you said, Jackie, none of us want to go back into lockdown again, but we do need proper mitigations to ensure that our schools can stay open, albeit that we're being warned we're moving into a difficult situation in the autumn and winter. And it's it's certain that there's going to be further disruption of, of one sort or another. But, I mean, I, I, I want to concentrate, first of all, on the track and trace issue. And Graham made the point that uh, school principals, school leaders are already uh, carrying a very heavy burden and just trying to keep their schools operating without having to deal with an extra burden of contact tracing. And you made the suggestion, Graham, about the department redeploying staff from other areas to come into schools. And I'm just wondering, uh, I mean, that seems eminently sensible to unburden school principals let them uh, deal with what they do best and, and have someone else dealing with the contact tracing. So uh, has there been any discussion with the minister or with the department about an initiative of that sort? I know this was raised with the minister yesterday, uh, who I, I, I understand uh, had an empathetic mind towards it. Uh, but what we really need to see now is some action direct supportive action into our schools. Um, the truth of it is, Pat, uh, these people are being distracted from their core duty and it is our children, our teachers uh, and, and the wider school communities who will suffer. Uh, the, the workload is intense and overwhelming and it needs to be addressed urgently. Appreciate your question. Yeah, no, absolutely. and especially in the context of confusion uh, 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 and our, our clarity around the uh, isolation uh, and, and particularly in relation to uh, a pupil who has a close contact at home and is coming back into school. Uh, you know, the, the, those are very difficult issues and there is a lack of clarity. Uh, well, I suppose... 
depending on which guiding guidance you're uh, looking at, the you know uh, whether it's the PHA or the department. But I mean that confusion doesn't in any way engender confidence. Uh, and, and I'm a parent of school children myself, uh, and and I'm very concerned uh, about that. And given what I've said, that there there will be further disruption. Uh, in, in in the winter in the in the autumn and winter uh, what would uh, your collective view be on the issue of the transfer tests uh, is it is it sensible to be even thinking about um, having transfer tests this autumn um, well well Pat uh, again um, the, the only answer I'll give to that is, is there a contingency plan? I mean, from April last year, uh, we and all, all of my colleagues here have been asking for a contingency plan just in case. And what we saw unfold was uh, a shocking abdication of responsibility um, and dereliction of pastoral care for, for the children who are involved. If we're facing that again, can we have a contingency plan, please? Uh, and have you any indication that there is a contingency plan there? No. Uh, okay. Um, just I'll, I'll pick up on the the issue of ventilation that uh, Chris also raised there, uh, and you know the the advice about opening windows. Uh, a number of you have pointed out how impracticable that is in some circumstances there may not be windows there may be windows that don't open what do you do if there's a gale force wind blowing outside if it's raining and rain is blowing in the windows you know all of those uh, issues that uh, you know any sensible person uh, would anticipate uh, the co2 monitors as you pointed out alistair i think it was uh, is, is just the first part of a process if, if the air quality deteriorates, then what happens next, particularly in the context of there not being windows or windows not being able to be opened? Uh, has there been any uh, discussion around air purifiers in classrooms or, or anything of that nature? No. None whatsoever? None whatsoever. The, the, the suggestion that we made um, was that the, the, the guidance seems to be based on what do you do if you've got nothing else? So open the window and open the door if you can. And the guidance talks about maximising that. But I think that what need what need what is needed is proper resources for something as simple as a fan, a desk fan switched on would help circulate the air if the doors and windows uh, in conjunction with that. And air purifier CO2 emissions or CO2 monitors. But that has to be one part of a wider set of mitigations. And I think the concern is that all of the mitigations are being relaxed or the perception is they're being relaxed. So things like the bubbles, the social distancing, the one-way systems around schools and face masks, all of that is, is part of the, uh, of, of the overall picture. Um, so I think that, that um, maybe the department does need to provide some actual physical resources um, to address ventilation rather than just suggesting to people open windows where they can. Yeah, uh, and I, I agree with that. And 
you know, it's, it's difficult not to come to the conclusion that the, the, the department is taking a hands-off approach to how schools should deal with the problem of COVID uh, and how it affects our schools, school children and school staff. Uh, and, you know, at a time when we require leadership, all of us require leadership in society in relation to this pandemic, but particularly in our schools, and particularly now we're moving into a period when things could become more difficult again. I mean, how do you feel, I'm asking all of you this, how do you feel about the leadership that's being provided by the minister and the department? Okay, I'll have a go. I I think it's very poor. Um, I'm really disappointed that whenever the executive office do discuss mitigations around school, that the minister is always on the side of uh, reducing the mitigations that are there. I think we have had examples where there has been good communication with ourselves within the trade unions and we have been able to positively impact on the guidance that has come out and reflect the actuality of what's happening within schools through the last 18 months. However, where it doesn't happen and where there is a short turnaround in guidance being received, advice being given from trade unions of how to reflect the actual situation within schools. This is where we have a breakdown in what is happening. The last guidance that came out um, was a very short turnaround again on inputs. And one of my colleagues asked for um, an, a, a tracked example of where the, the, imp, the, the, the responses that we had given, the positive practical um, sort of suggestions that had been made from trade union side were within the documents and that wasn't available and I think as we all looked at it we saw gaps that we had advised closing being put into it you know the I think the communication that has come from the department is it is almost a return to normal and what we're saying is there is no normal at the minute we are still dealing with the unknown of how this will pan out in the next wee while um, referring back to the ventilation um, aspect of it as well one of the key mitigations that is within the guide that w- it was in previous guidance and was it is within the attached supplementary documents from other agencies is a need to purge the room regularly so remove your class from the room open windows open doors and allow that air to clear before returning to it. You can't do that while also trying to maintain a normal curriculum within a school that has potentially hundreds of people in it, trying to plan how to do that. And while we talk about windows and doors being open, there's also the the very helpful reminder that you can't do that with fire doors. And a lot of classroom doors in new schools are also fire doors. So you can't have those open. So it's this, clash that is going forward what i would say is where we have worked well whether we have been able to represent the concerns of our members the reality of the school's estate i believe that has had a positive impact on the guidance we have then been able to support our members in adhering to and following and where it hasn't that's where there there are failings Okay, thanks. Thanks for that, Caroline. That's that's all the questions I have. I mean, I would just like to make the point that 
I mean, we're far from out of the woods uh, uh, as far as this pandemic is concerned. And we are being warned uh, by the scientific advice that we could be facing a, a difficult time in the few months ahead. And, and rather than taking a more hands-on approach uh, and ensuring there's clarity for our, our school staff and for school students, the minister seems to have taken a step backwards. You know, the, the, uh, the, the ending of the bubble system, if schools wish to do that, talk about uh, uh, the ending, the wearing of masks in school and, and uh, the lack of clarity around ventilation, around isolation and testing and so on. I mean, this, this is a time when we need leadership from the minister uh, and, and the minister has gone AWOL. Uh, and I just want to make that point. And I mean, it's it's not uh, because the minister isn't from my party. Uh, you know, I don't care. My my concern is for the safety of our of our children and our staff and the schools. And I don't think the minister uh, is doing what she could be doing or what she should be doing to ensure safety of children and staff in schools. Thank you. Thanks, Pat. And that, that's why obviously we're we're meeting today, and, and I agree that we need timely, clear communication and guidance and support from the education minister at this time. Um, she has an open invitation to attend this education committee and in response to these issues that are, are being raised today. Can I move us on and bring in Harry Harvey, MLA, please? Thanks. Okay. Thank you very much, Chair. Thanks, Harry. Thank you, Avian and uh, members and visitors. Good to see you all again. There's more be more comments rather than questions, Chair. And <clears throat> we'll just go through each one that spoke. First of all, to say to yourself for bringing up the ventilation thing, I think that's excellent. I mean, air is the most simple thing we have, and for moving it around, shouldn't be too difficult, you would think. Alistair, you mentioned like guidance written by people who have not visited a modern classroom, and we all know, I mean, even without visiting all the schools, that there are such a variation of, of um, ventilation systems, you know, some with ducts and some, yes, with windows. Um, the guidance on that, yep, that, that would be good um, to see what they actually are recommending. I mean, obviously, I haven't seen that, but it should be acted on. Okay, that's Alistair. Um, Justin, um, you mentioned then the, the monitoring of schools. The department are responsible. There's mixed messages coming out, which isn't good that um, all schools should be following the guidance and then mixed messaging wouldn't be happening. Um, as well as that, Jackie. You were saying about um, principals are not medical practitioners. I think that's very true, and there's too much expected of our principals at this time. Obviously, before all this, they had a difficult enough job, but to be lumbered with all this is just it's just um, so unfair. Um, the principals they do need to get a good handle on the situation, but. As you said, they do need help, and that help should be given, I believe. Uh, Graham, um, 
you you were saying about uh, the greatest risk transmission um, too much workload we need to deploy to help in the schools we need a workforce there to help the principals as well so basically nearly all saying the same thing that um, the teachers and the principals do need more help in it all and um, Caroline um, you were talking about the bubbles about transport um, about expansion uh, reluctance to share information that that is the biggest problem information sharing is not happening and that's how um, we literally get to where we're at so that, that's fair enough that'll do me chair thank you very much and if anybody wants thanks. to come back to me that's grand thanks for that harry any any witnesses want to come back or happy for me to bring in justin mcnulty mla Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Chair. Hi, folks. Hi, Justin, Caroline, Jackie, Graham, Alistair. Hi to my colleagues on Education Committee. Um, welcome back, all. Um, it's been a while, and we've had ho hopefully some respite. I'm hoping that all of you have been able to get some respite, given the, the chaos you've experienced for the last number of years. Um, and on that, how, how are you doing? How are you, as union leaders, doing? How are you coping with the pressure that you've endured for the last... 18 months, uh, almost two years. Um, and how are, how are your school leaders? How are people, how are staff, how are, how are people coping? Go, Graham. I was just going to say uh, thanks to Justin. Um, people don't usually talk to union uh, representatives with a degree of compassion, so thanks very much. It's very much appreciated. Uh, well, Justin, just from the, the uh, tone of your question there, you know the answer to that. Um, I mean, it, we we met with you, the committee, last this time last year and had a conversation about uh, the anxiety that our school practitioners were facing and indeed that our children and communities were facing. Uh, our, our children and our teachers uh, are all very happy to be back in school. We want our children to be in school, but there is a lot of anxiety, of course, uh, and there's a, a particular anxiety which hasn't been mentioned just yet, uh, which is around the, those people who are clinically extremely vulnerable, children, staff members, and indeed family members at home. Uh, and um, I mean, there, there is a lot of anxiety about how to keep those people safe, uh, particularly given the rates of transmission and, you know, the questions that we have about the, 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 the outworkings of the guidance that have already been spoken about. Justin, if I can come in as well, I think there's 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 a sense of of frustration um, that that the the approach seems to be that um, we're we're pretending that schools are disconnected from society, we're pretending that schools exist in isolation, um, and and as Graham says that that idea that you know there's there's vulnerable people in our schools, there's vulnerable pupils in our schools, and they live in families with vulnerable people. And there doesn't seem to be any uh, cognizance of that. There's just a, a set of, of guidelines that are designed purely to keep schools open, no matter what the cost. And, and as we know, schools are the most unvaccinated uh, environments in, in society at a time when the, the infection rates are, are increasing and will increase in the next few weeks as schools come back. Um, so I think that that... 
that frustration of of the school leaders and and we've already articulated it um at the start of the original lockdown and trying to reopen schools the, the role of of track and trace and contact and pha fell to the school principal almost by default it's not a strategic school leader's role it's a glorified admin or clerical role to be honest um but school principals you know grasped the nettle took the role on and have been doing it for 18 months without any proper recognition or or appreciation that it is number one it's draining the life out of school leaders it's encroaching seven days a week 24 hours a day um and there's no recognition of that and no recognition that that's not sustainable as this uh, academic year progresses there really does need to be some way of allowing a school leader to make the strategic decision and then for some other resource or some other clerical person to follow through the administrative actions that fall out of that uh, so i think that's that's it's that frustration justin um that there's a disconnect between what really happens in a school and the fact that it is part of wider society and just to echo what graham says it's nice to be asked sometime how you're doing and i think that's that's something that i think maybe we have we have missed that whenever we find somebody has tested positive or is identified as a close contact the first thing we all should be saying is how are you um so thank you for that uh, justin appreciate it chair could i could i just come back in again yes go ahead Greg. Um, I just want to add to, to that, I, I mean, our school principals and uh, people who have been managing contact tracing have been doing it out of grace and care for their school community. Um, the Department of Education has said that they can apply for additional funding, uh, additional amounts of money if, you know, and put it down to COVID cost, of course, uh, but uh, pr principals can't employ somebody to come and do this. Uh, I mean, there's there's another huge six week or twelve week long burden that they can't they actually can't take on. Um, but I just have a question: Why has this fallen to school leaders? Is it because, as Peter Weir said, it's because they're best placed, or is it because they can't apply for overtime, compensation, remuneration, time in lieu, uh, or have even any safe work cap on their working hours? I would hate to think that is following the school leaders to enable this response to a public health crisis to be done on the cheap. And I, I may also add, uh, under the Education Libraries Order in 1986, uh, Section 101 gives the Department of Education the power to direct any other relevant authority uh, across the education sector to take on this role. It can be done. If I could I just come in there, sorry, just to back up what Green's saying, but just to say that, I mean, we run into this issue with uh, within schools all the time because principals and teachers are a victim of their own success. Whatever we come up against in schools, they make it work. Principals make it work and teachers make it work. And then somewhere in there, the message is lost that these are people too with the same anxieties that other people have, with the same workload issues that other people may well have. And when we're saying about schools and society being disconnected, on the flip side of that, though, there's also that sense that schools work in the same way 
as the wider society. And when you look at shops, for example, who can limit their numbers of people coming in, you look at, you know, restaurants who can, you know, have a, a structure in place. And there's just a sense that schools will somehow make that work without any of those those things being in place. And the problem is that by but just by their very nature, principals and teachers will not step back, will not step back from delivering for the children in their care. And because of that, then they are disproportionately put upon, if you like, because they will make it work to keep those children safe and keep them educated. And I think that has to be recognised that we, you know, we take a step back, we put in support that people need, we listen to the anxieties that people have, put in the mitigations that are going to keep people safe and realise that, you know, school staff in general are, are will rise to the occasion and sometimes then suffer because of it. And we do need to recognise that as a matter of priority, particularly, I feel, with this term going forward, because I think this is going to be particularly challenging. OK, Justin, you want to come back in there? Yeah, yeah listen, thank you, folks. Listen, I, I fully feel for you in your positions as leaders in education, as a... I feel for principals, I feel for teachers, with the burden of response, the burden of responsibility here is extraordinary. You're, you're dealing with literally life and death situations. Given the school environments, as as one of you folks alluded to earlier, are the places where there is the least amount of vaccination, least uh, um, percentage of vaccinations completed. So it's a huge burden of responsibility. And you know, the outside the issues that have been raised in relation to GTC curriculum and uh, transfer tests. You know, what this meeting was called about this morning was around uh, preparedness for restarts. And the, the major issues I see it are isolation, testing, ventilation, tracing, guidance, communication or lack of, uh, resourcing and vulnerable staff and pupils. And I feel that pretty much saying absolutely this is all the issues that have been discussed today. Um, one, one thing was mentioned, uh, I think it was Caroline said, equality is an issue but it should never impact on the safety of the individual. Can you just expand on that, Caroline, please? Yes, no problem. Um, we had uh, sought advice with regards to 18-year-old pupils within schools. If you're 18 years old, the guidance for um, being a close contact of somebody of symptoms of COVID is the same as an adult. And the feedback that we got from the department is, it's okay, there will be equality and those 18-year-olds will be able to be treated the same as the pupils P1 to year 14. I'm making the assumption that the PHA has decided the line of advice for 18 year olds is what it is for their safety and the safety of transmission within the community. And my understanding is that the cases that are being seen within um, the increased cases are being seen within that age group in the early 20s and the news about whether people are vaccinated or not. To, to identify them on an equality issue as it's okay, they can return to school in line with their pupils, their, their colleagues, their pupils in the school who are younger than them, rather than give them the advice that applies to all 18 year olds, that if you are a close contact, you book a PCR test and you self-isolate for 10 days, while that will potentially impact on their education and may remove them from the school, it will keep them safe and it will keep others safe. And I just have concerns that the idea of creating an equality 
for uh, for pupils is overriding what is actual health guidance. And health and safety is, is not an equality issue. Health and safety is an issue of keeping people safe regardless of that, including encompassing their, their, their individuality, their specific needs. Yeah, I'm fully behind you now. Thank you for just clarifying that, Karen. So fully, fully endorse what you've said. Um, Graham, you mentioned that you know you appreciate if you're spoken to honestly by the department and by PHA. That's that's a really worrying statement to make. From to hear a school or a leader in education saying that about the departments and about PHA at this stage in a pandemic, it's I think that's stark. I think that's frightening. I think it's a big, big red flag. Yeah, Justin, uh, none of us here will question the medics. None of us are medics. None of us will question uh, health advice and the advice of, you know, these people uh, who have, for example, developed uh, amazing vaccines and so on. But we do question the agenda behind some of the guidance that we're we're seeing. Um, We can't understand how children who can potentially be transmitting coronavirus should be allowed into school to sit beside other children unless the agenda is that uh, it should be transmitted between the children. Um, the, the guidance that we had around isolation in previous waves uh, seemed to be more thorough in terms of keeping children uh, safe and avoiding transmission. So if, if there is a new agenda, we would like it to be shared with us. Okay, let's folks. Yeah. Uh, I should have apologised at the start. My colleague uh, Daniel Crossan is on holiday this week, so that's why he hasn't been in Tennessee. He sent his apologies. Thank you all very much for your continued efforts, and wish you well, and wish you, your your teams, staff, and teachers well across the board and principals, uh, to hopefully get through this this wave safely and pupils, um, and hopefully get back to that normal. I know that's. Uh, I think it was Caroline said there's no normal at the minute, and that's that's sad. Mm-hmm. That is the feeling in schools. But hopefully we can pull through this uh, with the, the, the support that you, you are, are fully entitled to, which should be forthcoming without delay. Thanks, Justin. Members, I think I had committed to the Teaching Council members that we would aim for a 10.30 uh, completion. I have Robbie, Diane and uh, Nicola uh, still to come in. So um, we'll try and, and, and be as concise as we can, but uh, I know I wish to shorten um, substantive questions from the MLAs either. So can I bring in Robbie Butler, MLA, please? Thanks. Thank you, Chair. Um, thank you, guys, for meeting us so early on um, in the school year. Um, and it's, it's really pleased that you made the time for us. Um, but we're not starting from a, from a blank slate here with regard to COVID, guys, because this time last year, obviously, we were going into the unknown. So my first question uh, is, you had a meeting with the minister yesterday, I believe. Would that be correct? Um, yeah. Okay. So looking at, we're not now dealing with hindsight. We're dealing with some knowns. Do you think there, with the, the new minister there is um, uh, a recalibration of of intent uh, and and uh, a sense of uh, learning from last year and what we now know about COVID and actually given the fact that the Delta variant has clinically proven to be more transmissible and, and, and kind of more dangerous. Did you get the sense from the minister that um, she has taken this issue seriously? I, 
I wasn't I wasn't in the meeting with the minister yesterday, but going by the guidance that is coming out, it doesn't feel as I look at the, that guidance, there is an awareness of what we know will potentially happen with this virus coming into the autumn and winter time and the expectation that it will have an impact. The guidance that has come from the department appears to imply that we are stepping down from COVID rather than very much dealing with COVID. And every everywhere else that I'm aware of, they're talking about as schools return, there will be a significant increase in numbers across the community with COVID. And there doesn't seem to be the, uh, the urgency of dealing with that would be my, my reply. But like I said, I wasn't with the minister yesterday. Other colleagues were, they can reply to that. Yeah, yeah. The, point, the point I would make, Robbie, is that I think in the last week or the equivalent week last year before schools reopened, there were 421 COVID cases. Mm -hmm. Last week, there were 10,819. So a lot of schools, there were schools last year who actually didn't have much contact tracing to do even though we know it did increase up to Halloween and then we had the big spike at Christmas. Schools were affected disproportionately. Some were hit a lot, others got off relatively lightly. And starting with over 10,000 cases a week in the community, every school is going to be hit this week. And I don't think the enormity of that is some home that we're now dealing with it almost being a certainty that every school will have transmission in school. Um, so we need to be coming at it from that point of view. So therefore, I think uh, relaxing mitigations at this point is the wrong thing to do. I mean, we, those mitigations were in place up until June uh, when we had fewer cases than we have now. So I, I think we all want to get schools open, but we, we want to keep them open too. And if this gets out of control, and our hospitals uh, continue to struggle more, um, we're going to end up with another circuit breaker type lockdown uh, because th th there will be, no, be nothing else that we'll be able to do. Well, I, 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 I totally agree. I mean, I think there was over 13 cases yesterday. Um, and um, I think what we did learn last year is when, when schools did go back, then it did increase that transmission around the community. I mean, you know, we had a discussion in and around, and I think the minister had said about the transmission at school gates and, you know, that, that parental piece. And the reality is that we're no longer working from hindsight. We're working from, you know, we have baseline facts. One of the things, and I thank the, the chair for bringing it up, I think one of the uh, greatest omissions and, and failures at the moment was the, the inability to do something serious about ventilation in schools. Um, and I think um, whilst all of us, and this would be across the executive, we all want to see our children in schools, we want to see our teachers teaching, but it has to be in the safest environment possible. I don't think we have taken the steps that we needed to take to do that assessment of what ventilation is in schools, and I don't think it's too late for, for the minister to do that. I, I, I would ask, I, would, I mean, I'm sure we'd be, probably this committee would agree, we could, we could call for a full assessment of ventilation and air quality in every school. I mean, the CO2 monitors, whilst useful, um, don't test for COVID, as we know. They just test for the amount of carbon dioxide in the air, which is an indication of either ventilation or lack of ventilation. And we do have an old school estate. So this isn't the minister's fault, but what will be is if there's not a proactive approach to making those environments as safe as possible. Um, 
the Graham, if I could go back on an issue that you raised, Graham, with, which was about, and we did, I did, we did raise this last year, and obviously it hasn't been action, but that is the uh, additional resource to do the track and trace piece for schools. Um, now, I remember last year that the department did come back and say that they had put together a, a, a helpline. And uh, the member was, uh, but that obviously doesn't fulfil that function. Can I ask you guys, in terms of any feedback, first of all, how effective that helpline was uh, with regard to assisting our, our, our teachers and schools? Um, Robbie, I'll just come in there. Um, first of all, I think you said that there were thirteen cases yesterday. 13, um, no, I'm sorry, I should have said thirteen hundred. Maybe, the, maybe it was yeah, okay. <laughs> 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 there was. I had a lot more than 13 calls yesterday, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, what, what was your question about? <laughs> oh, sorry, yes, it was the effectiveness of the, the dedicated helpline last year. Yeah, so, um, yeah, the, the people, once the helplines got up and running, um, there were there was a lot of discussion about the opening hours, the availability hours, and so on. Uh, that was extended at various times throughout the year. Uh, and the people who, who um, staffed those helplines, uh, were very good. Um, however, it, it it was possible to phone different numbers and have different advices um, when we should all be working from the same guidance. And Robbie, that is common uh, to what we've been experiencing over the weekend, where PHA may be advising school principals of one thing, the EA guidance uh, says something that's slightly different. Um, it, it's, very, it's very important the school leaders are getting uh, one consistent message. You know, I agree with that. There's one, one other thing, guys, um, and it's, it is the responsibility um, for head teachers, if you like, because um, the guidance is, is, is obviously the way it's, it's worded is, is given sort of the autonomy to make decisions, whether it's around bubbles and masks and, and all of the different things to your head teachers. In terms of the representative bodies, have you guys been given any advice um, to uh, principals? particularly um, a board of governors with regard to um, mask wearing, for instance, um, for people? Yeah, I mean, we, we would advise our members who are school leaders to stick to the mitigations that were in place. Okay. And, and um, it's always been our position that even if we get, for example, in primary, that those who wish to wear uh, face coverings, both type pupils or uh, teachers should be uh, facilitated to do so. Um, so, uh, and we think that the current uh, regulations around post-primary and masks need to remain in place and we would call on the executive when we review this uh, to keep them in place. Yeah. Um, Chris, on the 12th of August, a lot was made about uh, the mitigation of protective bubbles uh, was going to be removed. But when the actual guidance came out, um, throughout the guidance, uh, protective bubbles are encouraged very strongly as 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 they are being a very useful mitigation for transmission and also managing uh, the number of contacts that a child has. Um, so, you know, the, the whole thing on the 12th of August, the whole media presentation and so on, uh, strikes me personally as being a political move rather than a move that was uh, good for our children. And like NASUWT, my, my organization, NAHT, have been advising our members um, to stick with the mitigations that you had before because your school community, if they worked, your school communities understood them, the routines were in place, and the most re recent guidance 
doesn't negate any of the medications that were put in place before. So we've been advising our members uh, not to take risks um, and just to stick with what you've had before. Well, guys, I appreciate that. Can I supplement that very briefly, Robbie? Just just to yeah. ask, um, so did, did the department and or the minister consult with you prior to the, the, uh, the as you said, the, the at the very least public messaging from them that fast bubbles should cease? It seems particularly disappointing that that would not be the case and that there would therefore be any lack of clarity around that messaging then. And, and I, you know, I don't like having to say so, but the, 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 the lack of consultation, the lack of clear messaging, the Department and the Minister have been clearly advised to stop this. Uh, and it, it's disappointing that it's, it's still the case. Sorry, Robbie, you want to come back in there, I'm sure. No, I think that's, that's a good point, Chris, to be fair, because it was something that we, we constantly referred to last year, with, which was when we're going through a crisis, I guess the need to consult and consult appropriately is vital, actually, because this is a, this is, this is a public health life and death issue. It's not, a, it's not a political issue, and we should never turn it into that. So, no, I, listen, Chris, I, I think, listen, all the questions have been asked that needed to be asked. I'm just going to make one last comment. and going to be naughty because Pat brought the, the issue of transfer testing up. There, there, there were a number of solutions on the table last year. I'm sure they'll be there this year again. And one of them is to bring it back to primary. Possibly it's uh, not a popular one, but it's just the issue of transfer testing. So I'm sure we'll work co collegiately towards a satisfactory answer uh, for the, the, the topic. Okay, so thank you for your time and look forward to working with you this year. Thanks, Chair. Thank, thanks, Robbie. And support to, to constructively supplement that as well, Robbie. As, as I've endeavoured to communicate as widely as possible, the, the Education Committee undertook, in my opinion, fairly extensive engagement in relation to post-primary transfer last year. We, we conducted uh, a survey. The clerk can keep me right, but I think we had 8,500 plus responses. We, we took up assembly time by having a debate. Um, the outcome on the will of the assembly was for the Education Minister to put a contingency plan in place. The Education Minister did not do that. And, and I, 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 I conclude, but you know, obviously members can respond to this and we can take a view on this, but I imagine the will of this education committee is that that extensive work done last year, um, the culmination of which was a very clearly supported call by the Assembly for a contingency plan, remains wholly in place. Um, and and I, I presume fully support the calls that you've made today for at the very least a contingency plan. I don't feel authorised to, to, to convey an education committee position beyond that. I think I've made my views on post-primary transfer fairly clear previously, but um, it, it may be worth just reiterating the amount of work that this education committee put into backing up that clear call for a contingency plan. Can I, at that point, bring in Diane Dodds, MLA, please? Thanks. Thank you. Um, I'm presuming everyone can hear me. Yeah. Um, yes, thanks, so, um, Good morning, everyone, and apologies. I missed the message, the memo, Chris, that the meeting was brought forward to nine, and I had another appointment arranged, so I missed the first part of it, and I do sincerely apologize for that. Okay. Um, I, so I, I, I'm presuming I have got the gist uh, of everything right. Um, 
to, to all our, our union leaders, I am new to the committee. I am not new to politics and I am definitely not new to teaching in that um, a long, long time ago in a different life, um, that was my profession. Seems that long ago now, it's irrelevant. Um, but I do understand um, the pressure um, on teachers um, and many members of my extended family are part of the profession. So, um, I, I, and I want to clearly say that because I think it isn't said often enough and uh, we don't give credence to the fact um, that these are absolutely exceptional circumstances for you and your members to be operating in um, and that is absolutely clear. Um, there's a couple of things that I do want to, to, to pick up um, on from uh, the meeting um, and some things that I am concerned about. Um, and I'm concerned about also not just the practical things, but also uh, the perception. And I am concerned about the repeated allegation this morning that it is perhaps the minister or the department's intention to have the virus spread through our schools. I do think that that is actually um, harmful. Um, and I'm absolutely sure that that is not the minister or the department's intent and that the intent is to try to keep our children and our young people and our teaching staff as safe as they can possibly be in an unprecedented situation. So I am concerned about that. And I think use of language like that is very difficult um, and and will have, have a perception outside um, and uh, not confidence in the schools and in all the good work that schools are doing. Um, you know, I've had my own family members in schools this last week preparing for the return of children, conscientiously worried about them. So I am a little bit concerned about that repeated um, um, statement this morning. I suppose the other thing that I do want to say, and I'm, I'm absolutely clear about, I am delighted that schools are back. Children and young people like you, and you know this because you see them every, all day long, every day, they miss so much when they go to school or not, not going to school socially, their development, everything. But the restrictions of last year in school have also meant that... Um, Many children's experience of school has been very, very limited. And I can understand head teachers and principals who are striving within the confines of keeping children safe versus giving children a very wide experience of school in the curriculum. I can understand the real tension and difficulty in that. But if I think, for example, one school that I know, I know that some of those children haven't had access to the ICT suite in a year because of the way that the construction of the school is um, and, and the COVID restrictions. And it's this kind of trying to keep the curriculum as broad as possible for children while ensuring that children or staff are, are, are safe, which I think is, is a, a huge burden for, for head teachers. Um, and, and a huge difficulty and, and, and really hard to manage. So I do want to say, I'm, I'm really glad schools are open, but even with limited opening, there is limited potential to explore the whole curriculum in schools if we keep um, and, and 
don't try to, to progress. And I am a cautious person by nature. Um, and I would like to see caution uh, in all of these things. Um, can I ask, um, I know that, and Robbie has referred it to, and I saw it on Twitter, I wasn't talking to anybody, um, that you had a, a meeting with uh, the minister yesterday. And obviously all of these issues um, came up. So the need for um, a maybe a, a look at the messaging around um, the 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 isolation periods, a look at um, um, different issues that you have done. Have you um, a clear plan that you presented to the minister from the, the teaching unions collectively that would help address the issues that are being experienced? And secondly, in terms of ventilation, this is an interesting one because I've, I've spoken to many companies um, in Northern Ireland who are, are looking at how we can improve uh, ventilation and many companies say ventilation is really important but purification is equally as important so I think there's a kind of two elements um, to this particular issue um, and is there a, a clear ask around that um, from from the unions as well I, I would be interested in exploring these things with you and taking it offline and will be happy to do so Thanks, thanks, Diane. And I'm sure people won't be coming into that in, in detail. Um, I think Graham is possibly the witness who had mentioned most in relation to your first comment. Um, can speak for himself. I'd be glad to let him do so. But my reception of what you'd said earlier, Graham, was to ask a question um, rather than making a, an assertion in relation to an approach. So Graham, maybe you want to come in and add in then other, other uh, council members will want to come in on those other questions that have been asked. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Diane, and thank you for your for your lovely comments about uh, our profession, um, which are very welcome indeed. Uh, yeah, an allegation wasn't made; a question was asked, and I asked, I asked the question twice, and I would ask it again. Um, by the end of this week, today is Wednesday. By Friday of this week, it's not only possible but very likely that some children will have had to isolate or have a, a, a COVID contact at home, will have tested negative, uh, will have come back into school, will have sat beside other children, potentially extremely vulnerable children and adults in small spaces, uh, and will then develop symptoms over the weekend. And by Monday, principals will be getting phone calls to say that uh, that child was, has now tested positive who was in school for two or three days. And so the whole cycle starts again, and that will continue and continue. The problem is around the guidance. And my question is, uh, we, we all agree, Diane, we all agree that we want our children to be in school. We don't want our children to be missing any, any school whatsoever. But if the agenda is to keep our children safe and not contract this virus, then that particular part of the, the guidance needs to be looked at again. Or if there is a different agenda behind that piece of guidance, we would like to know what it is so that we can, we can help our, our members understand and work towards what that agenda is. So it's not an allegation, it's a question because that particular part of the, of the guidance uh, seems to be at odds with uh, all of the other language in the guidance about mitigating risk. Can, Chair, Chair, can I? Yeah, can I just on, 
on some of those other points as well. Yeah, then. those other points, yeah. Uh, of the father that's here today, Jackie and myself met with the, the minister yesterday, so she may want to add to it. Um, yes, it, look, it was very welcome to have a meeting with the minister. It was a very constructive meeting, and it actually covered a, a, a lot of issues beyond um, the, the restart as well. We did a, the discussions around the transfer test, uh, the teacher's pay claim, um, you know, how you, uh, the reviews that have been undertaken as part of, as part of the agreement, we discussed the GPC, governance and education. So quite a broad meeting, but at the same time, look, I'm confident that uh, the minister is listening and taking on board, you know, what we were saying. Uh, in terms uh, of a plan, we did bring forward uh, where we think uh, things need to improve. And the, the discussion was around consultation, and I think it is worth clarifying uh, where we're coming from when we say no consultation. There's no consultation ahead of the executive decisions or the political decisions, for example, uh, around removing bubbles. Uh, what tends to happen then is once those decisions are made, the DE officials and the employers then do consult with us. Uh, and again, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not so good. But we're not, so if the minister was in front of you and said that the department consult, yes, but after the big decision's been made, and then really what we're doing is uh, commenting on guidance that's been drawn up after the big decisions have been made and um, certainly to an extent uh, I would actually say not so much the department but I know the EA when they take on board our comments do it the right way in that they tell us they actually will say well we've included this because and say thanks very much for highlighting it or we haven't included this because it doesn't work whereas the department wouldn't have that level of engagement in their guidance. If I could just then uh, come in there, because um, as as Justin said, I was at the meeting with the minister yesterday as well, and it covered a wide range of topics. Um, as she assured us that she was very open to working together in the future. She certainly was listening, taking on board, you know, what was being said and so on. I think one of the issues maybe around the, the self-isolation and so on, um, Diane, is the fact that the schools literally have just opened their doors and we do have a meeting scheduled for, I think it's the 9th of September, which was with um, the department um, and EA, which was to allow us to have some time to see what the impact, knowing that this was going to be a slightly different impact with the higher transmission rates and within the younger age groups, there were going to be new issues arising. So we do have that meeting scheduled and you know, and the minister has made it clear that you know she will take on board um, views and move things forward. So it's it's early stages with this, um, but certainly we feel it's constructive moving forward. So, so can I come back in there? I am I am really glad to hear um, that you had a constructive um, meeting with the minister yesterday. And there's a myriad of of issues within. Uh, the education sector that will need to be addressed and dealt with. But obviously the safety and education of our children is the absolute priority. And I accept and acknowledge and I'm grateful for the fact that that is where our teachers are at as well and, and that they put themselves out 
to ensure that that is uh, their priority. Um, I, 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 I just think that um, we can sit in this committee and we can shout at each other or we can shout at the minister. But if we have positive proposals to make, then I think that you know we should be able to put those forward and see how those uh, impact uh, and, and how we can uh, push that agenda forward. Um, I'm happy to look at the issue around uh, the guidance um, and I'm happy to receive anything from uh, any of the unions um, around that so that we can see how how uh, we can take that forward. Absolutely happy to do all of those things. Um, but I do want us um, to actually have that constructive relationship where we're building um, together to actually move this thing forward, recognising that while we got schools open uh, for a period at the end of the last academic year, it was limited and it did not give young people the full experience of school um, and of meeting with their peers that they should have. Um, and I think the minister is open to that and is open to working with us um, to get to that stage. Thanks for that, Diane. I think Alistair wants to come in as well, and I, I would... I would obviously agree with you in terms of that um, constructive working. Um, I suppose maybe I'd just say, I, and and school opening, because I think I erroneously was in, accused of campaigning for school closure last year, which is absolutely ridiculous from anybody that actually engages with me in any shape or form. But um, issues around adequate investment and resourcing of ventilation um, clear guidance and support uh, for contact tracing, um, resourcing workforce for contact tracing, clarity around isolation policies. I don't think any of that is going to close any school anywhere. It's probably going to enhance the um, ability of the school to stay open. Um, but I saw Alistair wanted to come in there as well. Alistair, you want to come in briefly before we... Yes, the thanks, thanks for the question, Diane, and the, and the offer of of engagement, I'd be, I'd be very happy. I don't know, uh, my colleagues would be happy to engage with you. Uh, and, and on the on the issue of ventilation, I think from from a practical point of view, rather than being critical of the guidance, I think what what we would be saying is let's sit down and have a look at how ventilation can be improved in the coming weeks of the start of the, the school term. If you look at the guidance, reference to ventilation is way way down. It's buried in the guidance, and there's no ask. There is no uh, proposal or encouragement for schools to do anything other than have a look at the guidance. So what we would be saying as, as a starting point, Dan, would be we need to gather evidence of poor ventilation school by school. So talk to staff, talk to school leaders, look at what ventilation is currently in place. Look at the state of the windows, as, as Graham alluded to earlier, and whether windows can practically open or not. Do an audit of the workplace from a from a from a ventilation point of view, through through a risk assessment. Monitor carbon dioxide levels, and as we have said in England and Wales, funding has already been made available for monitors. And if the executive uh, could consider that, that would be a a welcome uh, intervention. And then practical steps to ensure good ventilation. So I think the the the, the unions and the education staff would be more than keen to work with the department or, or, or other agencies to actually start now to say what is the ventilation like and how can we improve it on a practical level without getting involved in the 
in the, the politics or the PHA guidance about you know what the fine print says. Let's get together and do something practical and do it in the coming weeks to make ventilation a practical live issue in schools rather than a footnote in, 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 in guidance. Okay. Okay. Thanks for that, Diane. Can I bring in Nicola Brogan, MLA, please? Thanks. Thank you, Chair, and thanks again to everyone for attending you this morning. Um, it's clear that you're all facing huge challenges and trying to reopen schools and to keep them open, and that you know it's a massive stress for teachers and school leaders and all school staff. Um, yeah, um, I suppose trying to both educate our children at the minute and to keep them safe. Um, and then I suppose it's also a major stress for parents who want their kids to be at school but have their own concerns. So um, you've done a really good job at um, highlighting those issues this morning. And I think it's really beneficial for us to hear from you so that we know the issues that you're facing and that we can move forward to try and um, I suppose bring the additional measures or introduce the additional measures that are needed. Um, just want to bring a point in as well. I know we're all in agreement, um, which is a good thing that schools should remain open. And the mental health champion, Siobhan Neal, was out this week as well, um, reiterating that support the schools should be um, open for our children's mental health and well-being and how important that is um, and for, for their social development and that. But just in regards to... Um, the information you've provided this morning. Justin, I want to go back to one of the points you made at the beginning about monitoring um, how schools um, implement the guidelines. Um, I suppose that is a big concern whenever you raise that, especially with the um, example you gave about risk assessments for um, pregnant teachers. Like obviously, that's a very stressful time, never mind with COVID. Um, and I think it would be really important for parents to have that confidence in, confidence in schools to know that they are following the guidelines um, properly and for all their staff. And maybe if staff are concerned that the schools aren't following it correctly, that there's maybe help and guidance there for the schools that need it, maybe extra support and funding. So can you give me any, have you any suggestions on how it could be monitored um, or what would you like to see? Yes, yes, I, I think the education and training inspectorate should be monitoring it. Um, uh, safeguarding is uh, within the remit and this is a safeguarding issue. It's not okay, except it's not the normal type of work we do, but I think we've heard from the others, everyone's been asked to do work that they don't normally do. Uh, and I, I think if uh, ETI were doing that, and and I suppose where they're finding it's not done, providing some support to get it done, it would uh, make a big difference because yes, the there is support from the EAs, colors as they call them, but I still think it really needs to be enforced that you have to take this seriously, and it's just shocking to find three schools yesterday where there were pregnant women at over 28 weeks working without you know, risk assessments. And we shouldn't be getting ourselves, I mean, it's a waste of our time too, because you're going and you're causing, you're writing to people very strongly worded letters telling them they're putting people's health and health, not lives in danger. You know, it should be monitored by the department that is happening. Um, the, the the other other department, for example, hospitality is monitored to make sure they follow the rules. And again, if everyone was following them, it won't be an issue. But I think we do need um, uh, a checking system as well. 
absolutely definitely agree with that and i think even um i think as i kind of mentioned earlier the it's schools that just maybe require more support and so we have reached out to them and highlighting the fact that they need more support it doesn't always have to be a negative thing do you know what i mean um so i definitely agree with you there that that should be looked at and we should move that forward with the, with the department um the other issue i wanted to raise was about the vaccine rollout and um do you find that school staff are feeling more confident getting back into the classroom since the since the successful vaccine rollout and what are your viewpoints on the vaccine being extended to 12 12 year olds and above um i, I think it's it's sort of on one hand yes teachers are more confident because they're vaccinated but i think there is that apprehension now because of the greater number of cases in the community that they are far more likely to come in contact with it than they were at any time previously. Uh, so look, it's going, there's going to be a balance there. Um, in terms of uh, younger people and getting the vaccine, if uh, the authorities uh, have judged that that is safe, well then that's what, that's what should happen. Uh, Sorry, the issue regarding the vaccination of younger people is with the JCVI and, and not within anybody else's um, control to, to push that forward. And they, they are taking their time coming forward with that. The vaccination scheme is fantastic for us as a society on a wider scale and is helping within school. However, it does not prevent you from catching COVID and people are still contracting COVID and um, becoming ill, hopefully on a far lesser scale than without it. That long term or even in the short term has implications from staffing points of view within schools in itself as well. If we don't do everything possible to mitigate the risks of COVID coming into a school and spreading through it. And I think going back to what the, the previous um, question was um, from Mrs. Dodds with regards to that there were she got the feeling we were saying there was an intention to bring in the virus and nobody communicated an intention to bring in the virus we simply are communicating a concern that removing mitigations could lead and is likely to lead to an increase in the virus within schools and that the while the the public message is about um vaccination making us safer and getting back out into the community the additional messages of removing face masks and of removing bubbles does not do what it needs to do to create to ensure our schools are safe um for everybody where, especially with this question mark of the 12 to 16 um, vaccination process or 12 to 15. Well, I think that's fair, Caroline. And I think it's important to make the point that even with, if you are doubly vaccinated or with the successful vaccination, we're like, you can't become negligent and I would never suggest that. Um, but listen, thanks very much to all of you this morning. Um, really, really informative. And I think we'll actually be, we'll find it all beneficial. So thank you and thank you, Chair. Thanks, thanks, Nicola. I'm glad you asked that question about vaccination for 12-year-olds and over. Does anybody else want to come back in on that any further? No, not for now. Okay. Okay. Thanks, thanks for those uh, questions, Nicola. And uh, teaching council members, thank you uh, sincerely uh, for your um, attendance here today. I know you've had to balance uh, uh, an extremely important meeting to be able to do so. Um, if everyone 
uh, we invited, including our, our department, and a minister responded in that way, we might get a bit more clarity. So I'm very, very grateful for you making that flexibility. I hope you feel like we've, it's been constructive and that we've been able to raise a, a wide range of issues that the Education Committee will do its best to, um, to follow up on. Um, and we'll be engaging with you again in due course. Okay. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed. Can I ask the clerk then, sorry, ask the Assembly Broadcasting to remove witnesses and add members back into the spotlight and keep them there until the end of the meeting. And can I ask the, our clerk to summarise any actions or requests for information resulting from the briefing? Uh, okay, I'm not, am I in the spotlight again? Yes, we can hear you. Evening, oh, thank good. you. Okay. okay, thank you, Chair. Um, so that was all very clearly articulated this morning, um, everyone. Um, there are specific questions. There's a specific question about what seems to be um, a loophole in uh, transmission arrangements um, for close contacts in school. Um, and I think there's a need for clarification on that. So I suggest that we would write to. Um, the education minister um, about that, um, and and then uh, additional points are about uh, what uh, data there is in the in the school estate about uh, the adequacy of ventilation, um, whether there's going to be uh, any support for CO two meters, um, and and monitoring of air quality uh, in classrooms, um, and obviously that's. Uh, impacted by things like class size uh, and you know the nature of the accommodation in each case. Um, also then um, the question of uh, monitoring of the school's compliance with guidance. Um, that's all of the schools essentially, um, as, as is the case for the hospitality sector. Um, and in particular that question, that issue that uh, was raised by a couple of members about um, uh, pregnant women and women beyond um, a certain number of weeks in their pregnancy um, who haven't been afforded uh, the right to work from home, which would be the safest arrangement for them. Um, so the compliance with those risk assessments. Um, so really, I mean, Chair, we can, the, uh, the Minister has, in, in the course of the meeting, we've received confirmation that the Minister um, will attend committee on the 22nd of September. Um, senior officials will be coming um, next week to address restart um, and also GTC. Um, now we can ask for um, maybe some officials from the health department um, or the public health authority to come along next week as well um, on those restart matters. Um, another option would be for the committee to try to address this comprehensively with, together with the health committee, perhaps later in the month. Um, so the health committee meets on a Thursday morning. I'm not sure what members' availability would be for that. Um, and I, I mean, I'm open to you know other additional matters that uh, members want to represent now, or actions that they might want to take. Yep. Thank, thanks for that summary, Clark. Uh, I think I think that's fairly comprehensive. Um, I'm, I'm glad the department officials are coming next week. Um, I, I would have hoped that the minister would have. Um, been able to attend the, 
the committee earlier than the 22nd of, of September. Um, perhaps we could convey that. Um, and I, I think given um, the significance of some of the issues from a public health point of view, that I would certainly be open to a, a joint education and health committee session with PHA and or um, medical and scientific officials as well. But ha happy to hear from other members in relation to some of those proposals. Chair, can I raise, uh, first of all, can I apologize? apologize for being late joining the meeting just due to other scheduled uh, and uh, if it goes beyond another 10 or 15 minutes, I'll probably have to leave uh, again, Chair. Um, just, can I just raise the question, Chair, the CO2 meters were, were, were mentioned there. Uh, I've no idea what a CO2 meter is. Uh, looks like, or what the cost of a CO two meter, or, or, or but it it would appear if it's uh, something to be installed in schools or classrooms, even it would be a significant uh, cost. So I, I wonder if if some piece of work might be just determined as to as to what that uh, sorry about that chair what a CO two meter and what the implications of that might actually be. I imagine it's not something that would be fulfilled within the current uh, education authority or department's budgets um, and may need indeed investment from, from the finance minister to address the issue. So if some piece of work could be determined uh, around that, Chair, to give us some understanding of what a CO2 meter uh, might be required and, and what the cost of, of, of those meters might be. Yeah, no, no problem agreeing that. Uh, I think the sentiment is why why that hasn't been done already. But absolutely, I think that that's a that's a great process that should have been done or needs to be done. Agreed. Thank you, Robin. I should just actually add that another proposal that came over quite strongly was um for some additional um. Uh, support for principals and leaders so that they aren't doing the actual administration of, of the mitigations um, that, you know, personnel might be um, more helpful than... than yeah, a, a, contact training, a contact tracing workforce was referred to, Clark, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, sorry, I forgot to mention that initially. No problem. Yeah, Joe, that's a, that's a particularly important point, I think that uh, Green Galt made very well, you know, that school leaders are being taken away from their core duties to deal with what is really just an administrative role of, of contact tracing. Uh, and there's there would appear to be no reason why the department can't deploy staff from other areas to carry out that role. Uh, and, and we should ask for an explanation from the minister as to why that hasn't happened thus far. Thanks. Jokes my memory as well, Clark, I'm not sure if you mentioned or not there as well, the the um, accessibility and availability of PHA helpline assistance as well, um, if we could add, add that to the correspondence. But I think that, that's showing you the interface with health, which is why I, I think there, there may be some interest to either, as you say, Clark, us inviting health and PHA and scientific and medical officials to our committee or, or indeed to, to undertake a joint session with the health committee. Maybe maybe we could invite them to ours to start with, given our interface with education. Yeah, I'll see.
Okay, well, members, if I, if I could propose in the first instance that we do invite any relevant health, PHA, um, medical and scientific officials to the committee in, in relation to some of those issues that have been raised, such as contact tracing, um, concerns around ventilation, and PHA helplines, and, and possibly also to, to garner rationales around the the policies in relation to isolation. Uh, I think that might be of help with members be content with that. Agreed. If you, if you, yeah, if you, I see you nodding heads, if you could, if you could. Uh, agreed, agreed, chair. Articulate that verbally, that'd be great. Thanks very much. Thank you. Okay, clerk. Um, any other matters in relation to that briefing? No. Not for me, oh. chair. Okay, members, agenda item eight is any other business? If there's no other business, then agenda item nine is the date and time of our next formal meeting, which is scheduled for Wednesday, the 8th of September via Starleaf at 9.30 a.m. Um, this committee meeting does now adjourn. Thank you, members. Thank you, Chair. Good to see you all. Bye.